And so at its very essence, yoga is the practice of discerning, I'm getting really philosophical here, but it really is discerning the change, the stuff in the world that changes, which is the entire material world, everything changes, from what doesn't change. And when we practice that enough times, we start to notice that there is something in us that doesn't change, but it's pretty deep down. <laughs> and that's what it's really about. It's about connecting with, first of all, realizing that part exists and connecting with it and being able to live a little bit more from that place. You're listening to CWC Talks, a podcast from the University of Florida Counseling and Wellness Center. In each episode, we discuss mental health topics related to the experience of being a student and share the struggles and joys of taking care of your mental health while in college. Please note, CWC Talks is not a substitute for counseling and may be sensitive for people who have experienced trauma. All guests' views are their own and do not speak for the CWC, the University of Florida, or the mental health profession as a whole. Hi, Jen. Welcome. Hi, Sarah. Nice to be here. Nice to have you here. And I know you are on the shy side of things, so I wanted to thank you especially for coming on the show because I think you have some really important things to share, and I'm so excited that you said yes. I'm excited too. I actually really like to speak about yoga and mental health, so okay. it'll be fun. Okay. Um, good. So yes, we are here today to talk about yoga and mental health. And I wanted to start with a couple of really basic questions, but I suspect they are much deeper than they sound coming out of my mouth. Um, what is yoga and who is yoga for? Okay. Those are big. It's really funny as many hundreds of hours of training in yoga as I've had, I don't have a concise answer for what is yoga. I probably could have answered that better before all my training um, when I thought that it was a system of exercise that originated in India, um, has some stretching, uh, and that's all true, um, but it's more than that. It's really a pretty comprehensive system of trying to ease human suffering, and I think the earliest yogis were really looking for ways to transcend the difficulty of being human, and some of the early practices were really about trying to extend the life of the body. And then I think beyond that, the practice has evolved into trying to ease the suffering that people experience in the body um, or transcend that spiritually. And so yoga really involves the unity of physical body, mind, spirit. Yoga technically means unity. Um, so that's the simplest definition, but there's a lot more context behind it. When you say ease the suffering in the body, are you talking just about like physical ailments? No, I think it maybe started as primarily addressing physical ailments. And obviously yoga does work with the body, but I think what people were trying to, or what I imagine people were trying to overcome was the identification with the body and like the, the identification with this kind of limited view of ourselves. And yoga really is intended to help us connect with something greater. It doesn't have to be God. It doesn't have to be theistic, but the sense that we're not actually that separate and we're not actually that alone. I want to come back to that um, mm -hmm. a bit more, especially around identity and limitation, but who is it for? I mean, most of the yoga classes that I've been to are a lot of young, skinny, white women. And, you know, I can also pull off the young, skinny, white woman 
thing, although I am 40 now and I'm significantly less skinny after having my child, but um, I think I have fit into that stereotype somewhat along the, along the way. So mm-hmm. who is yoga for? Yeah, absolutely. I, I know exactly the stereotype you're talking about, both from being in yoga studios um, with a lot of people that match that description, but also from all the popular media around yoga. And I think in this culture in particular, yoga has really been co-opted by the fitness culture. And so the very same voices that are telling us to diet or telling us to constantly be improving ourselves um, have kind of taken yoga into their arsenal of things. Why? (laughs) Why? Why? That's a good question. Ask them. I guess I was thinking on some level, like when you describe yoga as this much deeper, more complex opportunity for us as human beings, um, it doesn't make a lot of sense why yoga would be co-opted. Right. Well, yoga has physical benefits. You know, so someone who's practicing particularly an asana practice regularly, like their body will change shape a little bit. They obviously won't become white and female, but they might become thinner. They may move more easily. Um, Those are all mites. It really kind of depends on if they were already living in their body optimally to begin with, um, or whether yoga is a significant change from that. Um, And if you practice just the asana part of yoga, it looks a lot like our fitness classes. What's an asana? Uh, Thank you. Asana is the physical part of the practice. So the poses and what most people think of. So downward facing dog or a sun salutation or a warrior posture. And that's what most people think yoga is. That is one part of yoga, and yoga is a lot more complex. And you ask the question of who's it for. Um, It's really for anybody. Um, I know people of all ages who practice yoga regularly. My teacher in my teacher training was, I think, 75 when she trained me. It obviously did not originate in Western Europe or the U.S. And so the idea that it needs to be a white person is, you know, says more about our culture than it does about yoga. There's a lot of new emphasis in the yoga community now making the inclusivity more apparent. I don't want to say making it more inclusive because I don't know that yoga itself ever intended not to be inclusive, but showing different body shapes, you know, in the in the advertisements we use. Um, having people of different body sizes and abilities teach classes so that people can see what a shape might look like in a different body. That seems really important. Yeah, I think it's a step in the right direction. Um, I think it's also important for people not so familiar with yoga to know that you don't need to already be fit and flexible, and you may not become fit and flexible. You'll probably become a little more comfortable in your body. Your body will probably move with greater ease if you practice yoga, but it won't necessarily, it's not a fitness routine. Um, And so it doesn't require any prerequisite in terms of amount of fitness. So you can turn it into a fitness routine, but it certainly doesn't need to be. And it has a lot of other benefits, even if it's not your fitness routine. Exactly. Yeah. I think one of the main ideas behind the physical part of the yoga um, is to create ease and comfort in the body so that we're not distracted by aches and pains in the body. And we can, for instance, meditate or even just engage in our daily lives more fully. It doesn't have to mean fitness. Because if I'm in pain, if my shoulders are really tight or my hip is complaining, then my attention goes there and Mm -hmm. I'm uh, personally tend to be much more irritable um, Mm -hmm. and just not able to be as present to anything else. It just kind of takes over. It definitely takes over. And I, you know, I 
in terms of being a therapist, I think more somatically. And so I think literally about the energy that is stored up in our body from the things we've interacted with in our daily lives, from stresses or past traumas. Um, and so I also think just on an energetic level, sometimes my insides at least can feel like, you know, shaking up soda bottle and sometimes some movement can allow some of that excess to release. And then I can sit with some more stillness and actually look at what's there. Um, I think that's really the point of the asana is to help us sit. It's to help us sit and attend to what is, what needs attention inside of us. Yeah. Be even able to tell what it is. Right. Because (laughs) if it's a shaken up soda bottle or like, I'm thinking about, you know, like a muddy pond where you stir the water that mm-hmm. it's very hard to see what, you know, what's in there and how to work with it. And the sitting almost lets that uh, mud begin to settle. That's a really great image. Yeah. I wish I could claim it, but it's, <laughs> it's been around. <laughs> you borrowed it from someone. Yeah, from I'm sure plenty of places. I want to get back to identity um, and identification with the body with suffering. I think I have an idea of what you mean when you say those words, but I'm not entirely sure that Mm -hmm. I do. And then I'm also wondering about listeners who Mm -hmm. that might be a new concept or new language for them. Yeah. And I didn't necessarily plan to say it. So I'm I'm still thinking through what I would want to say about that. That wouldn't take six hours. You know, I think being a psychologist and being a person who's done a lot of my own psychotherapy And just being a human who's grown and developed, there's so much emphasis on developing a self and an ego, a healthy, you know, sense of who we are and in describing that and in building something we like. Um, And then we move through the world with this kind of story about ourselves. Posting on Instagram about Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. So make sure the story is, you know, nice and shiny and put together for the outside world. And then we might have, you know, a different internal story about who we are that we may or may not like, Um, but we live very much from this story and we work on kind of revising the story as we go along. And I think yoga invites us to do something a little bit different and that invites us to kind of go below the narrative and below the story into something a little bit deeper that doesn't change. And so at its very essence, yoga is the practice of discerning, I'm getting really philosophical here, but it really is discerning the change, the stuff in the world that changes, which is the entire material world, everything changes from what doesn't change. And when we practice that enough times, we start to notice that there is something in us that doesn't change, but it's pretty deep down. (laughs) And that's what it's really about. It's about connecting with, first of all, realizing that part exists and connecting with it and being able to live a little bit more from that place. I think this is so important, this conversation, and I know you weren't planning on necessarily going here, but I I think it speaks to where yoga and the philosophy and spirituality of yoga can really complement some of the Western psychology stuff that you and I Mm -hmm. have both been trained in. I almost wanted to say indoctrinated in, Mm -hmm. but you know, it's just been so much a part of the value system that we've grown up with in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's important. I think we do have to learn to exist in the world. And I actually think even from a yoga perspective, having a truly human experience is part of it. Like we are supposed to be fully human with all of what that means, including being attached to our stories. But then we have the opportunity to look beyond that and 
and the looking beyond that can go a long way towards easing suffering or cultivating meaning. I want to talk about this notion of being attached to my story or attached to who I am. I wonder when you say that, like I think about if you were to ask me at a party, who are you? I would instantly think of of answering in terms of what it is I do for my Mm -hmm. job, who I'm married to Mm -hmm. or not married to, right? I'm single, I'm dating, I'm married. Mm -hmm. Um, If I am a parent or not, male, female, gender, age, race, Mm -hmm. culture, religion. I might have an identity as looking a certain way, you know, and I might take some of that for granted, like currently uh, having a body that has physical abilities and doesn't have physical limitations, that I'm identified with with that as well, that I consider all of that being a mother, being a wife, being a counselor, all part of who I am. And yet, all of those things can change. And most of them do change. Over time, and often when they change, we, we suffer. Yes, it's yeah. we, it, often the change is, is not something that we want. It's not something that we asked for. It's not something that we predicted. Mm-hmm. And I think we we hinge a lot of our sense of worth on the status of some of those things, and that adds to our pain as well. Um, so, so for college students, even the idea of I'm pre med. Mm-hmm which may be true today and it may not be true next semester, chosen or not chosen, and that can have its own, its own impact. And I think for yoga gives us the perspective that, you know, pre-med is a path we're following, but it's not who we actually are. And I would add a different lens to that as well. When I talk about being attached to our stories, I think we also get really attached to limiting stories. So we talk about, I am depressed or I am you know, I have chronic pain or I have this injury and that becomes connected with who we are in our minds. And so it can sometimes change how we feel about ourselves and it might change what we choose to do. Um, or we might be having an experience of depression, but we are actually, we, the essence of us is not depressed. Like depressed is not a characteristic that applies to, you know, our soul or our core self or whatever you would name that that part that doesn't change. Maybe the the Western idea of a state, not a trait. Right. But when we get identified with some difficulty that we're having, like I I am a depressed person, what impact does that identification have on just how my ability to change? Maybe my ability to become less depressed or not depressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it impacts everything um, in subtle and not so subtle ways. I mean, for me, when I find myself identified with whatever label I give myself, um, it really confines my choices. You know, I might not choose to do something that I don't see as lining up with that label that I've given myself. Um, It also colors all of my experiences. So if I'm sitting here feeling like I'm depressed and I'm preoccupied with the fact that I'm depressed and I'm looking at the depression and I'm just thinking about how I wish I wasn't depressed. And that's, you know, taking up so much of my mental space. I'm not noticing that like, Oh, that cool breeze felt really nice on my skin. Like, and there's my puppy walking by 
and that there might actually be a little bit of fluctuation in how depressed I am um, because mm. I'm so identified with the story about the depression that, oh, that yeah. the opportunity for change is missed. Yeah. Or even, you know, I change, but also just joy, like in that moment. Yeah. Like, I guess I'm at state level change, not yeah. like trying to change myself, but just like, oh, there, there was a moment when there could have been another experience also. That's so important. So yoga and yoga philosophy, and I keep going back to saying yoga philosophy and yoga spirituality because I I want to expand what we'd say the word yoga that it, in mm-hmm. this conversation it really does include those other parts. Yeah, you're interested in how yoga can help with suffering. And how you can integrate yoga into therapy, into mental health mm-hmm. counseling, psychology, psychotherapy. Talk to us more about that. Say more. <laughs> say more about you questions. say more. Now, how have you been working on integrating that? Like what specific, what does that actually look like? So does a student come in for a therapy and you tell them they need to get into down dog or like what? <laughs> It doesn't look like that. It okay. could. I mean, I, I think it would be possible to integrate, you know, more if we think of as yoga into therapy um, and then have space to process it. But I honestly haven't used it that way. For me, the yoga philosophy and spirituality implicitly is infused in what I do in that it, it affects how I see things and what I even feel like the goal of therapy is. You know, like yoga is not about becoming a better version of ourselves. It's about becoming closer to ourselves, actually that can change the goal somewhat for people. And also, you know, it changes what therapy looks like. Um, On a really concrete level, I do offer groups that incorporate more of a a typical yoga practice, a way slowed down, more introspective practice than you would experience in a gym or even a yoga studio, but where we get to experience things a little bit more from the body and then process them in the mind instead of coming up with ideas of how we want to be and checking in with the body, if that makes sense. And I like the group aspect of that as well, because there are so many things that feel unfamiliar about a yoga practice or even thinking in line with yoga philosophy that I think it could be really nice to have some of that normalized when we sit with others who are also kind of experimenting with that path. Can you give me an example of that? Like, so if I'm a student in one of your groups, what would be something that might get normalized or validated in that space? Oh, it could be something super simple. Like, you know, I went to practice, you know, yesterday, the day in between the groups, whatever. And I just couldn't get my mind to slow down. And then someone else has had that experience. I can at least say I've had that experience. And we talk about that and and we can troubleshoot that a little bit, you know, we can say like, okay, what if we tried movement first? Sometimes movement allows some of that excess energy. So it might label it anxiety to settle. So then we can sit and do meditation. Someone might say like, oh, I did this, this particular posture. And I had like a lot of emotion, you know, like I did that back bend and then I felt teary and I didn't know why I didn't have a story attached to the tears. I just felt tears. That happens in yoga practice sometimes because we have a lot of feelings, our our emotions are embodied. Like that's just the nature of emotions. And so sometimes they show up on the mat um, when we move that part of the body that we didn't know was storing the emotions, you know, and we can hold space for that together. I have totally started crying and even sobbing in yoga Mm -hmm. classes, not 
being aware of any particular sadness necessarily, Mm -hmm. um, but just this deep, almost like a release that can happen. And yeah, if, if the teacher or the setting isn't supportive of that, that can be kind of alarming. Yeah, I mean, if we're in a, a gym yoga class, and I don't knock gym yoga class in particular, I've taught them. Um, but And I've taken them, yeah. <laughs> but if we're in a gym yoga class and the class is moving on to the next part of the power flow and we're sobbing on the mat, that is pretty incongruent and it can be really uncomfortable for everyone. But a therapeutic yoga space can leave room for that to just evolve into whatever it needs to be. And we don't have to figure out what it was. And that's another really freeing thing about yoga is just like being with things as they are and letting them move through and kind of trusting the body's wisdom to do whatever the next thing is that needs to happen. My mind is going to trauma and and especially thinking about trusting the body's wisdom Mm -hmm. and how trauma can really, to use polite words, mess things up with Mm -hmm. that trust process. Can you say a little more about (laughs) just about that? I know you, you know, you also trained as a, as a, therapist who specializes in trauma and trauma mm-hmm. recovery. So you bring a lot of, a lot of different streams into this conversation. Yeah. So I have training in somatic experiencing, which is a body-based approach to working with trauma. And that's actually what got me interested in being a yoga teacher because um, I got really curious about the body. And in particular, I got curious about my own body and my own lived experience of trauma and how that was impacting my ability to experience the here and now. And I would not have necessarily come to that from an academic place. I think nothing in my training led me to think the body was important. But through that experience of doing the somatic experiencing training, having my own healing supported by yoga and somatic experiencing, I also got really curious about what you're talking about. And the way I see it connecting is for those of us who've experienced a lot of trauma, the body's just not a safe place. You know, so it's not just whatever trauma happened to the body and our memory of that, but the uncomfortable emotions we feel every time we drop down in the body from there on out. And so we get really, really good at living kind of in proximity to the body, but not really being in, (laughs) Uh, at least I did. I got really good at um, having a good story about what was going on, but I actually wasn't feeling all that much about what was going on. I just talked like I felt it. It leads to a couple things. I think one, just not a very vivid life experience, like life can feel kind of gray, but also when the narrative we've come up with in our head is disconnected from what our body is trying to tell us unsuccessfully, I think that leads to a lot of suffering too. Like we, have, we end up with somatic symptoms. We don't know what they're, why they're there. We can't sleep or, you know, appetite disruption or whatever. And the body is like, you know, I have a story to tell. Please pay attention to me. At least that's how I see it. So yoga gives us a way in, I think, a way of starting to cultivate some safety in the body. And I don't think it necessarily happens automatically. Like I think sometimes there's like a prescription, like, oh, this person had trauma, go to a yoga class. And I think that could could be damaging as much as it could be helpful. Like we don't know. But through yoga practices, we can start to cultivate, first of all, like a calm or even pleasant state in the body that makes it feel okay for someone to start feeling in. And then from there, people get better at feeling what the body is communicating, you know, and that might be just like, I'm really, really tired or like, I don't want to do this movement or like hmm, when I got in that pose, the teacher told me to, I felt like I want to come out of it a little bit, you know, it can start on this like really literal level. And then it gets more subtle as we practice that more like yoga sensitivity training. 
but with trauma, I think the very first step is just creating a state in the body that feels worth being in. Which is huge and can yeah. be like itself just such a huge step in the healing process mm -hmm. to even recognize you're not in your body mm -hmm. and find a way to begin to, to hang out there a little bit, just mm -hmm. to tolerate hanging out there. Mm -hmm. For sure. Um, I like how you said even realizing you're not in your body because I think, you know, a lot of times we don't, we don't know that there's an alternative way to experience things. How would you, I'm going to totally put you on the spot here. So sorry. Um, <laughs> but even just for listeners who have never taken a yoga class or never, you know, somatic experiencing sounds like a foreign language to them when they hear mm -hmm. that term, yeah, like sure. how would you invite me to tune into my body, you know, in the here and now, just would you be willing to, cause I'm actually not that into my body right now. I'm enjoying this conversation, but I feel intellectual, you know, with you. Mm -hmm. And so how would you even just encourage me to, to tune in? Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. Everyone needs support. And sometimes something as simple as a letter can make a difference. UFCWC's Letters of Care campaign is a unique way for Gators to connect and receive compassion, support, and understanding from a fellow Gator. Once you submit your request for a letter, it will be anonymously sent to one of the UFCWC's aware ambassadors who will write you back a letter of care within five to seven business days. It's your own personal aware care bear. Request your letters at counseling.ufl.edu forward slash letters. I love your question. I'll disclose that when I first started my own therapy journey as a client, I think the first couple of years in therapy, when my therapist would ask me what I was feeling in my body, I actually, I literally didn't understand the question. Like it, it led nowhere because I was like, that's not, not only is that not relevant, I don't understand how I would answer it. So good, good thinking. So if, if we were sitting together in a therapy space, or if you were my yoga client, Sarah, I would invite you to just bring your attention to your seat right now. Notice the structure supporting you. And if you're standing, I would encourage you to notice your feet on the floor. Notice the boundaries of your body where your body touches something else. And you might notice either the soles of your feet or your sitting bones and just take a moment to kind of move all your weight to the right side and maybe move all your weight to the left side, those can be big movements or imperceptible movements. And then see if your body can find its natural center. And if you're not sure, just guess. And so really, I, I mean, that was very slow, that was very short, but I might start just there. And depending on a person's response to that, if that felt like, oh, that was really weird or too much, that might be all we do. And then we might just talk. <laughs> That's yoga, like you were in your body. I yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting differently mm -hmm. as a result. Mm -hmm. I feel, I don't know, I was all like hunched and my shoulders were all hunched up while we were talking and I was lopsided. I was just kind of perched haphazardly. Mm -hmm. And now, I mean, I've got both my feet on the floor. Yeah. I've got 
Um, my shoulders have dropped down. I'm yeah. sitting up straighter and none of it feels like a pose. Right. We could add on, we could add a we pose. We could, we could put my arms up, up to the yeah. sky and that takes more effort. Yeah, you I know, might I like on your inhale, allow your arms to float up. Notice if they're moving at the same pace or moving at different paces. Notice where they naturally want to stop. And then notice if there are any muscles helping that don't need to be helping. That's a big one. <laughs> and on your next exhale, just allow them to float down. And maybe close your eyes and imagine where your arms are in space. And then open them and check and see if that's where they really are. That's interesting. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. And just notice what's happening inside as we reconnect. It's... Even just that tiny bit of, of movement combined with awareness, like I just, I've, I was exhausted going into this conversation. I, I know we were both talking about waking up really early this morning without trying. And I just, I, you know, I still feel tired, but I, I do feel just a little bit more like centered and clear headed right now. Clear headed. I like that. If someone were to ask you right now what your body most wants, would you be able to discern that? So for so much of my life, absolutely not. Or it would have wanted a drink or a <laughs> cigarette or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it wanted regulation. Right, right. right. What, I, what, I, what I want most is actually to stand up. Like I've been sitting in this chair for, so that was, yeah, it's like, gosh, mm-hmm. I want to stand up. So I know there are practical uh, barriers to that right now, but if we were in a space together, I would say, well, let's experiment with that. Like what would happen if you stood up? What do you notice? Where does your attention go in your body? You know, I might invite you, bring your attention to the soles of your feet. Okay. Bring your attention to your shoulders, you know, notice where it wants to rest, things like that. And I can see how even just starting there could really go quite deep for somebody who has experienced trauma, doesn't feel safe in their body, doesn't have any idea what their body really needs, to even just begin with that basic question of trying to listen. Mm -hmm. What does the body need in this moment? And the possibility that you might be able to respond to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so a lot of times with a really open-ended question like what I asked you, people who've experienced trauma and haven't fully processed it won't know. You know, I wouldn't have known for years, (laughs) but maybe with some options, one might sound better than the other, you know, or holding a lunge, like, would it feel better to have your knee down or your knee up? Why don't you experiment with both and see what feels right? And just every time we do that, we're connecting, we're strengthening that connection between mind and body and building some trust in both directions. You just phrased that really interesting when you said, giving somebody some options. Does your knee feel better? Does your body feel better with your knee up or your knee down in a posture? Tell me about that phrasing versus some of the other um, options that you might get in a gym style yoga class. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think (laughs) there's so much context to this. I think about just our 
the fact that yoga is so um, infused with our fitness mentality and then our general culture and society of um, trying to be better and working harder and valuing that over you know nurturing and self-care and there's so much i could say i think for the fitness orientation of yoga there might be a goal to be able to have a posture look a certain way when you're done and i think for the deeper inquiry of yoga that is possible and that i really value the bigger idea is to be able to have a conversation with your body and understand what it wants and needs and respond. And so really the, the asana, the, the posture, the physical part of the practice gives us a place to inquire about that, a place to practice that, you know, so holding a posture, not for the sake of the posture or for even like what it's going to do to your muscles or your ligaments or any of that, but holding a posture to have sensation and then to notice what we do with that sensation and then to have the opportunity to adjust that sensation a little bit and see what happens next. That's how I view even the physical practice of yoga as being really connected with mental health and well-being. That's so different. I mean, it's, I was even thinking about our diet culture too, that, yeah, like the whole experience of intuitive eating and, and really slowing down and listening to how we, how our bodies feel, how, in response to food rather than judging mm -hmm. the food choice or what the health of the food choice is or uh, some of those things like mm -hmm. like what a it sounds subtle but it's so radical mm -hmm. to have the goal be a deepening conversation with oneself mm -hmm. than with what those pressures and expectations are of how we should be mm -hmm. For sure. And as you were talking about that, it made me think back to what we talked about, about the philosophy early on in this conversation and the idea of being attached to our narratives and kind of attached to our self-image. And I think that's, I think that's at the crux of this really. Like as long as we believe that our worth is defined by the size or shape of our body or the alignment of our warrior two posture, um, or even like whether we were able to do the whole power flow this week as, you know, as compared to last week, it really shuts down the desire for conversation because there's an incentive to not know the answer. Like there's an incentive to kind of override the body signals and go in the direction we, we think, or some part of us thinks that we should be going in. Or when we can let go of our identification with those goals and kind of trust that we are actually already pretty okay under there somewhere, <laughs> then it's really nice to be able to have the conversation and we can do that without all these extra constraints. And that movement can become, I don't know, it can become an intimacy with mm -hmm. ourselves. Yeah. That's a perfect way of putting it. Saying that I just, I feel no pun intended, but I feel moved. Like I feel moved at that possibility that that, that exists for all of us really mm -hmm. at any time, if we can, remember mm -hmm. yeah and the remembering is so scary it's hard and it's scary and i think that's why you know yoga is both a practice and a path it's a path towards trying to remember that and trying to get to that reality and have that be what feels the most true because at first it's like i've heard that those words but it doesn't feel true at all but then it also offers these practices that help us along that path and that's what the meditation is that's what the 
the postures are and the breathing practices. They're all just places that we can experiment with trying to feel more in touch with that deep, unchanging part of ourselves. Why scary? <laughs> That's a good question. I guess because I live in fear and so things should be scary. <laughs> um, I'm an Enneagram six for anyone who knows the Enneagram. <laughs> so. I live in so much fear that I don't even realize it's fear most of the time. Well, yeah, I was like, just because it is scary, Sarah, like, why do you have to justify that? Uh. <laughs> so for me, I'll speak for myself. I came into yoga to balance out a really punishing fitness routine that I had taken on because of my ideas about who I should be and what made me okay enough. And so my yoga practice was not spiritual and it was not psychologically minded. It was like, wow, this extreme running routine is damaging my body and I'd like to balance out some of that damage <laughs> or minimize the damage. So for me, as I got more onto the path of yoga and beyond just the physical practice, the idea that I might not have to do all these things that I had felt like I'd have to do to be okay did feel scary to me. It felt like taking a leap into something that I couldn't quite imagine. Like I didn't know what was on the other side of that. Like I knew how to to meet other people's expectations of me. I knew how to look at a goal and achieve it. I can control who I'm going to be and how people are going to respond to me if I create my identity and then, you know, check all the boxes and make the nice picture um, to fit with that identity. I have a lot, I feel like I have a lot more control in my life. Or if I am just curious about what my insides want, like they might not want to run 20 miles on Saturday. Like they might want to do something that people might have different feelings about. So it was scary for me. That makes so much sense. It's like, if you're not all those boxes and mm -hmm. who are you? And mm -hmm. that can be terrifying to like, yeah. literally like, I don't know who that person might be. And what if what they want and need is really different from what I thought I was supposed to be. Right. And what the people around me have come to expect me to be. And there's so many pieces that go with that that are really valid, you know, because we're social beings, we're relational beings. That when I started yoga teacher training, my first training, people joked about, you know, be careful training to become a yoga teacher, it ruins your life. <laughs> because of the bad experiences so many people have when they go deeper into that practice, they start to let go of things they never thought they'd let go of. And the life they thought they were creating changes into a very different life. For me, it has not ruined my life. It has made it much better. But from the mindset of where I was maybe 10 years ago and what I thought I wanted my life to look like, that version of me would think this has been ruined. Yes. That yes. That makes sense. And so yeah. there is fear. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And there, and there is, you know, there is risk and cost and maybe the, the cost is super, super worth it, but you don't know that until you're in it. Right. Yeah, you don't you don't see the other side of the like how it's gonna uh, pay off for yeah. you. Yeah. Until you're receiving it. And by then you've already given up whatever you were holding on to. <laughs> and all the pain that may have gone into that letting go. Yeah. Yeah. So gosh, I've enjoyed this conversation with you today and I feel like it it took me into some places that I needed to be reminded of. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. Um I'm wondering someone listening to this like if they wanted to create a more trauma-informed pra yoga practice or maybe even just start moving their body 
in some of the ways that you've been talking about today, or maybe with the intentions that you've been talking about today. Uh, how would they begin? Is this someone who has a yoga practice or someone who doesn't have a yoga practice? Either one. And I know those might be two different answers. Yeah. The how is actually challenging for me to articulate the intention to move the body in a way that creates intimacy and a feeling of being okay. That actually sounds like the key ingredient. And so I would, you know, cultivate curiosity. And rather than come up with a goal at the beginning of any movement practice, you know, I'm going to do 10 sun salutations, or I'm going to run two miles or whatever the, the types of things we tend to do, to do a little movement and then check in, you know, so in Kripalu Yoga, which is my first background of training, they have a kind of an acronym that stands for breathe, relax, feel, watch, and allow. And the way I would guide someone through that is we might do a little bit of movement whatever the movement is, and then pause and, and the physical body becomes still so that we are not distracted and we can check what's moving on the inside. So you might notice some energy flow, you might notice your heartbeat, and I'd invite people to notice their breaths, to soften any holding around that, so relax. Sense in as much as you're able. And early on, that might mean feeling your feet on the floor or feeling a place that one part of your body is touching the other part of your body. Or you might just notice places that feel sore from whatever you did. And that's feeling. And just watch what happens when you become aware of it. And whatever happens, see if you can cultivate a willingness to allow that. Um, and that's the practice, like over and over, whatever movement you're doing. It might be like, go for a brisk walk and then come back in. And it might be stand, it might be sit, but just notice the state of your insides. And we can do that with anything. And that's a really beautiful place to begin if you don't bring a lot of preconceived notions to um, to this then it might actually be easier because you've got that beginner's mind i wonder for someone who's been doing the power flow for a while and mm -hmm. is scratching their heads right now what kind of teaching or class environment if they still wanted to do that mm -hmm. kind of thing like what what can you look for in an instructor in a space to, to maybe signal that Oh, like if I do drop some tears in here, that might be okay. Or what can someone look for? That's a good question. I want to insert in here that I would, I would not completely knock the power flow. Some people benefit a lot from that practice. I, I enjoy that practice, but you can still do that with a little bit more mindfulness and with inquiring how your body is experiencing it. And maybe a little more permission that you give yourself to modify or change. In terms of what to look for, for an instructor or a class, I can get really technical. You know, there are people, there are trauma-informed yoga certifications you could look for. Um, so you could look or, you know, look at a teacher's webpage or ask them if they have any training in trauma-informed yoga. And I say particularly trauma-informed even for people that would not identify as having trauma because that training teaches teachers to be more invitational in the way they talk about things and to be more respectful of an individual's choice. And so those teachers, I would think, would be less likely to preference one way of doing a movement over another. And that could be really important. You know, I know for me on my path, I was so conditioned into not just people pleasing, but kind of like achieving and getting approval from whoever was watching. That if I sensed any preference from them, like I was going to do it even if my body had a different opinion. Um, and I think a lot of us are like that. 
So finding a teacher who can really support that would be good. A yoga therapist. So there, there is a profession called yoga therapy. It's credentialed by the International Association of Yoga Therapists. It's not just for psychotherapy. It's any therapeutic use of yoga. And so you might find someone who's either a teacher of therapeutic yoga or who is a credentialed yoga therapist. They would have the training and the practical experience to hold space for whatever happened. And they are really trained to be more student-centered or client-centered in their work. And I think that can be really a different experience. Those are the big things I would look for. You know, I think it would be hard to find that space in like a gym or a fitness center and even some yoga studios. But just like with therapist client matches, like I think teacher student matches make a difference too. And so you might find the barely credentialed 200 hour teacher who's like literally only trained in power flow, but who has a presence that has a lot of space for whatever's happening. And that could still be okay. But I would say trust your insides on that too. Yeah, I think that's so important that I just want to reiterate, like I've had experiences in classes where there was just something about the teacher that I felt like it would be okay if I needed to stay in child's pose Mm -hmm. for 20 minutes if something came Mm -hmm. up. They would not force me. They would just respect me. Um, and And that there was something about just taking their classes that I noticed helping me deepen into mm-hmm. myself, even if they weren't overtly telling me to do that or encouraging me to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then other teachers, for whatever reason, even if the postures were very similar, I just mm-hmm. cringed inside. Mm-hmm. I just, there was something about their style that did not work for me that felt a little bit oppressive. Mm-hmm. And and even like would come over and adjust me when like, you know, if you're in down dog, your butt is sticking up in the air. And if you've been like sexually assaulted, for example, that is a really vulnerable pose to be in. And, you know, I've had people just come up behind me and pull my butt out more, like mm-hmm. it, without asking. Um, yeah. And maybe sure, that's, that's the better pose, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are things like that to pay attention to as well. Yeah. I mean, I cringed inside hearing you said say that, and I thought, well, is it the better pose? You know, right. <laughs> like if, well, if right. outside your natural range of motion, was it actually better? Um, Which is super, it was just super <laughs> important too. That's a really good point. But to your point, someone who's been credentialed in trauma-sensitive yoga or probably most yoga therapists would not walk around the room while, while class is going on because we want to cultivate a space that's safe for introspection. And if someone is having to watch what's happening with us, they're not going to feel safe really dropping in to what's happening inside them. Um, so like I'm trained to stay on my mat and just give instructions. We also, I'm trained also to give verbal cues to help people adjust. So I tend to not give a lot of extra alignment cues because I really do want people to feel the postures from the inside. But if I see someone doing something that I think will hurt them, I have words that I can say that can help them adjust that in a way that will be safer for their body without ever having to touch them. Right. Right. I got this flash as we were talking just now of art uh, painting that I've done and like spaces I've been in where the the class was designed to help you paint a certain way, like to Mm -hmm. make a boat look like a boat that you would see on the water versus a boat that might be in a children's storybook and Mm -hmm. how, um, and I've also taken art 
classes, for lack of a better word, that were just all about self-exploration and self-expression and just experiencing what it's like to paint. And the differences between those two classes are remarkable. And that in the first style of art class, where it's designed to help me learn how to paint something that we would call quote unquote objective, the teachers would come and just paint on my canvas. They draw on my drawing without asking. And it, it was like such a violation. Uh, but violation. Yeah. And so, and, and just, yeah, just the differences between what ultimately was so freeing for me was to be encouraged and invited to see what wanted to come up naturally for myself in art and in, in movement. Yeah, that's a really beautiful comparison, actually. Just thinking about like what my intention is as a yoga teacher and as a therapist, it really is like helping people discern their own path and supporting them in that. And so we wouldn't want to paint on their canvas. You know, we don't want to draw them out for them and tell them where to go. Um, That's ultimately not that helpful. Um, And it actually, I would think, inhibits some of that inner knowing and creativity that, you know, I believe we inherently have. Thank you so much for sharing about this today, Jen, and exploring with me. Is there anything that you would want to add before we close up today? I knew this question was coming and I didn't prepare for it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but if you had, would would it have been as spontaneous as... (laughs) Um. I can't think of anything in particular. I really appreciate this conversation too. I can talk for way too long about philosophy and get way too heady. That's why yoga is a good practice for me. I would say if students are curious about the practice of yoga, particularly in a therapeutic space, um, I would just want to let people know that there is yoga at the CWC that is therapeutic. Uh, and they could call and ask for that, and um, we would help direct them in the right place. I don't have anything else. If you today could say anything to your college self about the topic that we've been discussing, and I know it's a big question, you can shoot this down. Honestly, it's like, it'll be okay. You know, the like, the things that you are so anxious about, that you are so identified with, that seem like they're everything are going to change. It's not going to turn out the way you want it to. And sometimes it will. And both of those are going to be okay. And none of those define you. That's the essence of this, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for listening. You can find CWC Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Please leave us a rating and review us. Email us at cwc-talks at ufl.edu with your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. Show notes, resources, and more can be found at counseling.ufl.edu slash cwctalks.